sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals. Welcome to the Politics Conference, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. The uh, defending freedom business, uh, it, it takes a lot out of you. So early Saturday mornings are 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 sometimes tougher than, yeah. than you think they're going to be. But regardless, here I am. That's 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 good. You know, before we do get started, I want to thank one of our newest supporters. Well, actually, a former supporter, Eric, on Patreon, who very briefly paused his support. And now he's back. And he wrote in to me, he said, yeah, I had to buy a second modem for work, so I couldn't continue to contribute. And I had to cancel my membership. That lasted a week. I just couldn't do it. Uh, I So I'm back in a smaller capacity, but I got to chip in. I need my oh. politics, guys. And Eric's been with us for a while. And, and it's just I, I think it really exemplifies the sort of listeners and supporters that we have. And, and I just want to thank Eric and everyone out there who is like Eric. And I know there are a bunch of you who make, make this show possible. So thanks very much. And, of course, if you want to become a supporter, uh, when you're a Patreon supporter, you get that second full-length episode every week. You get ad-free versions of all our shows, various other things at different levels of support. You know where to go check it out at this point, patreon.com slash politicsguys. And as always, if you would like that bonus show, but you're not in a position financially to be able to support the show, send me an email, mikeatpoliticsguys.com, and I will get you set up with that midweek show. And if a monthly pledge is just too much of a commitment or you just like to support us on a one-time basis, but you don't want to go through Patreon, we've got PayPal at politicsguys.com slash support. And we are also on Venmo at politicsguys. All right. With that, Jay, why don't we kick it off with our, it's probably as a surprise to no one, top story of this week. Yes. Uh, obviously, our, our top story uh, is, is probably one of the top stories of, of the last year. Uh, and that is the Derek Chauvin verdict. Uh, Minneapolis uh, jury convicted uh, Derek Chauvin of uh, all, on all three counts: uh, second degree murder, third degree murder, and uh, manslaughter. Um, and so that 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 in itself, Mike, we could probably take up a show with. But but in addition to that, there were some surrounding issues to discuss. One is uh, comments by Maxine Waters uh, prior to the verdict. Uh, where she uh, exhorted people that if they didn't get the verdict they wanted, they needed to stay in the streets and uh, get more confrontational. Uh, the judge in the uh, Chauvin case uh, denied a motion for mistrial on the basis of that, but indicated that uh, that that may well be an issue on appeal. Uh, similarly, but uh, less inflammatorily, I guess, uh, President Biden, uh, before the verdict, uh, made a statement saying, I pray that the, the jury reaches the, the right decision. Um, and, and I think there was was no real doubt what Joe Biden thought the right decision was going to be. Um, so those there are are those issues uh, that, that I think we should discuss as far as uh, their impact on uh, this this case and possible future cases. Uh, and then the next step is is. Uh, the uh, uh, Justice Department has announced a uh, uh, sweeping um, investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department uh, and its use of force and whether it is uh, acting unconstitutionally, uh, sort of on a habitual pattern uh, by by doing this. Uh, and then and then uh, finally, the other piece, if, if we can get to it, is um, uh, the the uh, police reform legislation. Um, uh, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina had proposed a bill uh, last year uh, that went nowhere. There is a uh, Democrat uh, Democratic alternative um, at this point. Uh, the last we heard is that there were discussions between uh, Tim Scott and uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, seeing if there might be a possibility to come together. But the the sticking point seems to be uh, qualified immunity and the extent of qualified immunity for uh, uh, police. So with with all that, I guess. Um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll pitch it I'll pitch it to you, Mike, on initial thoughts just on uh, the verdict. And uh, I, I always hate to ask this question: Did the jury get it right? But uh, your your sense: the Verdict? Did the jury get it right? Does the system work? 
Well, I, I think those are two different questions, but I, I, it seems to me that this well, case, the, the, the sure. system work in this yeah. case? I guess that's better, that, the better way to put it. That this case was unusual in the sense, and I think telling in the sense that so many police officers actually testified for the prosecution. This wasn't the you know, this sort of the, the, the blue wall went up. There were plenty of cops in, in Chauvin's own department who said, wow, that was just clearly out of line. And so in a way, you know, I guess we can say that in this instance, it seemed to be pretty clear cut. There was such strong evidence that uh, it seemed that, yeah, I, I, I certainly think that the right verdict was reached. Uh, but in a way, this is kind of a, a there's a concern because this could potentially strengthen the well, you know, sure, there are some really, really bad apples like like Chauvin, who clearly just went beyond the pale. but. He was convicted, and so therefore, nothing to see here, folks. Let's kind of move on. We don't have we don't have a problem, essentially, you know. And and so I think in that sense, I I was happy with the verdict. Like I think a lot of people, I think it was the right verdict. But I also am concerned that too many people will use this as an excuse to say, well, you know, if there are bad cops, see, they can be convicted. And my response would be, well, yes, if they do something so incredibly egregious as this, but. I've watched a video like so many people of this, just like I watched a video of the Adam Toledo and the uh, uh, the young woman in Columbus this week, whose name I'm, I'm forgetting at this moment. But those videos, I think, are a lot more commonplace. What we're used to seeing is they're not as clear cut. It's not nine minutes plus of stepping on someone's neck. It's this sort of boom, boom sort of situation where everything is shaky and unclear and it's a lot harder to see and understand what's going on. And I think that's a lot more commonplace. And so that's why I think this is maybe a bad case to point to in a sense, because I don't think that most police misconduct looks like this. I, I think this is so egregious that it's not necessarily representative of, of some of the stuff, a lot more of the stuff that tends to go on. And that's why I was very glad to see that Attorney General Garland was announcing uh, the first actual, it's the first Justice Department investigation in the Biden administration of a police department. So let's get back to where, as far as police misconduct, and, and I guess there is a, would you draw a line between uh, police misconduct, bad policing, and criminal conduct? Because I, I think that's that's something that, you know, for example, the Justice Department uh, uh, investigation may look at a whole lot of things uh, that are, uh, for example, unconstitutional. Right. Is is there is there overly racial policing? Is there a bias that's apparent uh, uh, or that sort of thing is is force habitually maybe overused? That's those are all separate issues from crime of murder. Sure. And and I guess, you know, to, to me, um, it seems that, yes, the facts on this and, and I'll I'll give my sort of usual caveat that I'm always hesitant to weigh in on a jury's decision because necessarily the jury sees it's in, in some cases much uh, more evidence than we at home see. And they also at the same time see much less evidence than we at home see. Um so a lot of times it's it's tough to say uh, exactly, you know, did your jury get it right? Because unless we're watching the trial from start to finish, we don't know what all they saw, heard. We don't know what all. And also we can't ignore, ignore other stuff that, that we saw and heard that uh, the jury w would not have seen. Um, all that said, I think the jury got it right, uh, you know, based on everything that I've, I've seen. Um, and. You're right. This is a case where the evidence was pretty clear, pretty overwhelming. Uh, it, it was it was nine minutes of video. It was uh, dozens of witnesses who actually saw the incident. Uh, it was plenty of of um, uh, forensic uh, witnesses. So, so yes, this is is maybe the easier case um, because it is more extreme. Um, but is isn't that? maybe better right uh in that if you compare to for example the columbus case um there's uh, you know we could have a whole show on is that police misconduct right uh i i think i think there's a, a good argument to be made that that policeman is a hero um he saved another's life uh and and you know acted quickly 
Um, it's a tragedy that that someone had to die, but um, sure. I think there's there's very much a, an well, argument and, that that is not. And, it's, and, it's not. It's it's conduct of a of a completely different uh, uh, type of character uh, than um, the Chauvin sure. case. And, and that's why I think it's important to. We, we tend to focus on discrete incidents and take our sides and so forth, especially when the evidence is not as overwhelmingly clear as it is in as it was in, in the Chauvin case. But in a case like the uh, Makia Bryant case or something like that, you say, well, was this cop a hero or a villain or something like that? Well, that's a tough question. But one thing we do know is that, for instance, in Columbus, Ohio, where this happened, uh, that the data from actually a, a study that the city commissioned of the police department from 2015 to 2019 showed that blacks uh, in, in the city accounted for about half of all use of force incidents and while making up only 28% of the city's population. Now that that's a more, that's kind of pulling back and looking at a broader scope. And that's the sort of thing that these justice department investigations take a look at. And I think that's a, right. that's a very healthy sort of thing. And I should point out that, you know, this was, this, these only came about, because of the 1994 crime bill, which a lot of people had issues with, and I think rightly so, but this is one, I think, good thing that came out of this crime bill because it basically empowered the Justice Department to go ahead and sue local governments for these unconstitutional practices. And, and you know, we've seen a ton of these consent decrees since then, which is basically where they kind of settle, right, with right. the government. There are also things called collaborative agreements, which are kind of a different, less restrictive version of that. I mean, there was one in uh, Cincinnati in 2002 where I'm at in Cleveland. There's one from There's 2015. There's one in Cleveland there for a while. All kinds of, uh, you know, a lot of cities. And I think the, the evidence that we that has been collected from researchers on this has demonstrated, at least certainly to my satisfaction, that this has led these de these decrees, these agreements have led to better policing without the sort of rise in crime that a lot of people feared would would come after this. And so I think they're generally speaking a good thing. And that's why I was glad to see this. I mean, there were there were like three of them in the Bush administration. There were 15 consent decrees under Obama. Then Jeff Sessions becomes attorney general under the Trump administration. And these things basically just stop. And so I'm glad to see this coming back because I think it's a very well, although although prior point. ones that were in place still remained yeah, in place. Exactly. But those investigations yeah. basically to, you know, Donald, uh, President Trump saying, well, you know, the police shouldn't be too nice or something like that, you know, right. and, and all the I think all the progress on this basically stopped for various Trumpian Sessiononian type of reasons, essentially. Yeah. So and we should we should explain, I guess, in a little little detail the, the way uh, these department investigations work, because this is this is a distinction I want to draw, uh, is the Justice Department essentially brings a civil suit uh, against the uh, the city the, or the department or whoever the, the official body is um, regarding certain practices being unconstitutional. And then uh, the city and the government uh, reach some sort of agreement as to here are the steps we're going to take to remediate that, uh, at which point they enter into essentially a, a settlement with the court and the court records it uh, on its books. Um, and I think it's I think that's different because in, in the one in, in, in that case, we are talking about sort of a bigger collective conduct uh, yeah. Right. And 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 a uh, uh, civil suit, whereas uh, in in the Derek Chauvin case, you are necessarily and quite properly, you're talking about an individual determination on an individual for an individual act. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think to some extent when we say, well, will the verdict change the way policing happens uh, and people say, well, no, this doesn't address everything. I think my response is, yeah, but it's not supposed to. This is this is necessarily how the justice system works, is you have a single defendant and he's tried on that single conduct based on that evidence in that case. Yeah. Uh and, and it would be it would be improper um uh to to bring in other evidence uh, uh you know against against him. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I mean, I, I just want to want to make that that distinction. You know, and you, you mentioned earlier legislation and uh, referred to, I think, the uh, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which was passed in the House in March. Uh, it actually had one Republican vote, but it turns out it was a guy who hit the wrong button. Not really. um, so, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> said, whoops. But I, I think there's actually, you know, you, you mentioned Tim Scott being the Senate negotiator on this. And I think there actually is some basis for 
some, I mean, potentially for some sort of uh, agreement here. Uh, for one thing, it seems like there's general agreement that uh, chokehold should be banned at the federal level, and there should be maybe some sort of a uh, some sort of incent- disincentive in terms of funding for state and local agencies that permit the use of chokehold, so they would lose federal funding essentially. Sure. Uh, there's also, I think, similarly agreement on the problematic nature of no-knock warrants uh, on the on the usefulness of body cameras, on issues with giving local police agencies too much military-style weaponry, a- yeah. and even, you know, on on the positive nature of some of these investigations. So I think all of these things, the Republicans tend to have much more of a carrot-than-a-stick sort of approach to that, if you will. It's kind of putting it, spinning it in a positive way for Republicans. But it seems to me that the big issue that you mentioned is that qualified immunity issue. And, and just to be clear for listeners that qualified immunity doesn't refer to criminal trials. So it wouldn't be like in, in, in the Chauvin right. case. This is only this, this doctrine that shields government officials, including police, from being held personally liable in civil cases for uh, these for these violations actions it, actions yeah. taken within their their the scope of their duty yeah and uh, yeah. there you know there's there's a lot of case law uh, behind this but basically the court has said that supreme court has said that the only way to overcome this qualified immunity defense is to show that the conduct that this per- the defendant engaged in well it, the words are violated clearly established statutory or constitutional right. rights which a reasonable person would have known. And on the face of that, that sounds reasonable. But in practice, what it means, what it's, well, what it's meant to this point is that qualified immunity is granted unless there's an earlier decision by a federal court in that jurisdiction or the Supreme Court that essentially holds that the exact same conduct under the exact same circumstances was ruled to be illegal or unconstitutional. I mean, there are some crazy cases about wow. this, Jay. You've heard you, you it. Got, you got that totally right. You know, well, I, I, I really, I mean. That was, that was really good. I was really, gonna, that was going to be my, like, lawyer answer. Well, but, thank, yeah, thank you, you, you know. Uh, you kind of beat me to it. Uh, but, I mean, there are some uh, there are some wild cases. Like, for instance, um, there was a police officer who shot a 10-year-old kid while trying to shoot a dog um, who was just being a dog. And the 11th Circuit said, well, the officer is entitled to qualified immunity because no previous case said it was unconstitutional for a police officer to recklessly fire his gun into a group of children without justification. Right. A- and the right. court there's, also there's said- sort of There's sort of the like, well, uh, no one has, has ever determined that this is a constitutional violation on a Tuesday. Exactly. Uh, and this case completely happened on a Tuesday. So, yeah, we don't have any precedent to, to go to go on. Yeah. So um, this whole... I'm, I'm, exa- I'm exaggerating. But, yeah. But, but no, that that sort of, uh, I think, states it uh, pretty well. And, and there is. Uh, and I'll. I'll say this, this there's there is a. A hesitancy again, most of the most all of these cases are brought um, well, I shouldn't say that, uh, but but often they can be brought in in uh, state courts, and there is a reluctance um, to to the expansion of sovereign immunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in in a lot of places, um, and and it you know it kind of makes sense because the the sovereign is is <laughs> reluctant to expand it. Um, the other side, I could argue. Uh, and, and I don't know, but we've talked about this before, but I've actually been in, in these situations, um, uh, filing, uh, 1983 claims against, uh, police officers and police departments, uh, and, and have run into exactly that, that issue that, that you're talking about that the, yes, well, it's, uh, really looks pretty unconstitutional, but it's not exactly the same as, as, uh, this other case you're looking at. Um, but the, the other problem of course, is that. Uh, municipalities are are deep pockets, and there are plenty of people who have encounters with the police that uh, don't go well, or at least they don't feel they go well. Um, and uh, that you know, it, it could be something of the a lottery ticket type um, mentality, and, and I think that's what a lot of municipalities fear that if these are if 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 these protections are weakened to the extent that there is no qualified immunity, yeah. Uh, you will see a raft of everyone who was arrested uh, can make a claim saying, listen, I was uh, my constitutional rights were violated. 
uh, give me money. And, 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 and I get that out of the, out of the number of that, I think you'd, you'd see more settlements and that's the concern. Yeah. And I get that. And I think that's a fair concern, which is why I, I wouldn't support just ending qualified immunity, but it seems to me that you can have some sort of a, again, reasonable person sort of standard that isn't as incredibly strict as we have. I mean, I'm sorry, if you're if you're a police officer and you're firing into a group of children and you say, well, I have qualified immunity because there's been no case law on firing into a group of children, that that to me, that that's just wrong. And, and yeah. you can you can craft the standard that that singles out that sort of egregious, pretty obviously wrong behavior that any reasonable police officer should have known was wrong without destroying qualified immunity. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're right. Um, it's it's just yeah, finding the language to do that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I will also note that I mean, typically uh, Democrats have been more friendly to the trial bar, uh, sure. And that there is a there is a you know potential if if qualified immunity were were uh, eliminated, which I don't think it will be. Um, uh, and keep in mind, in many cases, it's it's uh, state qualified immunity. Uh, right where that that uh, you're looking at the state statutes and different state statutes spell out uh, qualified immunity a little bit differently. So it's not like there's they're all the same and there's there's one national standard. But I, I think, you know, the way you 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 put it, it pretty much catches catches, you know, the bulk of everyone. I mean, um, I, I feel like, you know, people respond to incentives, both positive and negative. And if if police officers, government officials in general who have a certain amount of authority, especially if they're carrying, you know, weapons, uh, I think it's good for them to know that, hey, I can't just do whatever I want and know that the government is going to have my back and I am, I am, you know, not going to have to worry about anything unless I, you know, unless I murder somebody, essentially. I think it's important for that, for that knowledge to be there that, hey, if I go by, if I go over the line, no one's going to have my back and they shouldn't have my back. So I better stay within, you know, within reasonable standards of of my profession. And, and, uh, you know, I've said a bunch of times and I took some heat on from listeners on this last week saying that I don't think the problem is that, you know, uh, is that we should, or the issues that we should defund the police. I think the problem is that we need to set, we need to set standards and compensation hard. We need to demand more of our police. And that includes a lot more accountability. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll, this is this is maybe getting a little off, but I um, by by chance, I scheduled a, a lunch with a good friend of mine, uh, another BW graduate who is a police chief. Uh, he's been police chief in uh, a Cleveland suburb for 15 years now. And it, it just happened that that we had lunch the day after the Chauvin verdict. And I was I got his perspective on it, and we I'd love to have him on the show time sometime because it was fascinating. And his he he sort of said exactly what what you did, uh, and, and sort of in some uh, other other tweaks that that people don't think about in terms of um, policing. And uh, he described it as is it, it's a craft, and it takes years and years to learn this this craft. And in, in some ways, there's a weird disconnect because it's. On one hand, a blue collar job, uh, but on the other hand, it, it calls for some some pretty significant high level decision making uh, and significant people skills and and so forth. Um, uh, and and you know one of his recommendations was uh, you know, there was a weird weird tweak, and again this would vary from state to state. But in Ohio, you can't become a police officer until you're 21. Uh, and you have a lot of uh, kids who graduate at 18. Uh, if there are a way to catch those kids and put them into a pre-vocational program, right? Um, you know that maybe they don't want to go to a four-year college. Uh, that that uh, they can they can get experience and and uh, move forward. And then when they're 21, they are ready to be a a police officer. Because once you get kids past 21 who have the college degree, a lot of them don't want to be a police officer anymore. Uh, and the other thing he mentioned was the difficulty in finding good and qualified candidates. Uh, and he said that his department and many departments really struggle with that. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's only getting more difficult um, because, look, the, the incentives at this point um, uh, are, are, are not great. 
Um, I mean, you know, I, so, I, yeah, I think it's important to think about is that we're asking in many cases, and I think rightly so, saying to these folks, we are going to literally demand that you have a camera on you at all times. If I wore a body cam throughout my day and my activity, I mean, that would be that would be pretty stressful in and of itself. And so what we are we are demanding more and more. And again, I think rightly so. But. I want uh, the people I want, you know, representing the, the government walking around with guns and tasers and so I want these to be incredibly well-trained, well-motivated people who feel good about their jobs and, and aren't stressed yeah. about financial or other things. And so that's why I think that we need to pair these. I, I, I'm just so adamant on this that we need far more accountability, but we also we can't just have that accountability and say, well, we're not going to, we're not going to compensate you for all the things we're asking you to do and be. That's just, that's just doesn't follow to me at all. Yeah. But you know, one, one other so, thing oh, I was going to say, the one other thing that we didn't talk about yet that you mentioned in the open were the remarks made by Maxine Waters and, and Representative Waters and, and President Biden. And I feel like President Biden's remarks are, that's not really a big deal. He specifically waited until the jury was sequestered and you know, same now, Maxine Waters has a long history. I know she's one of your um, favorites. Certainly. <laughs> one of my favorites, yes. Long Get in time. her face. Get, yes, yeah. But, you know, and yeah, I, I certainly thought that that was inappropriate. I don't think it rises to the level of grounds of appeal. You'll certainly everyone has their right to state their opinions about that. It means a lot more if that opinion comes from if, if Joe Biden during the trial had said, by God, if they don't find, if they don't find Chauvin guilty, there's going to be blood in the streets and I'm okay with that. Well, that would be one yeah. thing, right? Maxine Waters, who, I mean, that that's not that big of a deal. I don't think it's really grounds for appeal or anything like that. I certainly don't think she should have been. I think, oh, I think, I think it's grounds for appeal. Yeah. I don't know that it would be a successful there you appeal. Go. Okay, fair but enough. But it's certainly, it, it's certainly grounds for it. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's funny seeing someone like what Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, well, she should be expelled from Congress. Like, okay, yeah, you know, the person saying, well, we should, you know, shoot Nancy Pelosi in the head or something like that, you know, but, uh, but yeah. Well, just, just, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> Stop, stop clocks, right? Uh, twice a day. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you know. but, but yeah, and I think that's, um, you know, I think it is inappropriate for people with a position of, of public trust to make sort of, and I know that some people are saying, well, she just meant to, you know, yell louder when you protest or something. I, it seemed to me that that was pretty clear what, what she was saying. And, and I had a problem with it, certainly. Yeah. Well, well, good. I mean, and, and to me, it's, it's, I I'm very troubled when a uh, politician or anyone with a a loud voice in media warns essentially warns a jury about reaching the wrong verdict. Um, I mean, that's, I, yeah, that's problematic, and that shows a lot of disrespect uh, for the justice system uh, and the jury system, and and really puts those jurors uh at potential risk and given what i you know I, I i can't think that there's anyone on that jury who i mean obviously they they're all residents of of uh minneapolis they all saw what happened last year uh long before they were put on a jury um and and i think they all understood what would have happened uh if they had reached a, a different verdict and the fact that you have a member of Congress who can is go out going out there, um, and, and essentially this sort of saber rattling of, look, you 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 get this you get this right or there's going to be, I mean, when she says more confrontational, uh, I don't know, um, what what <laughs> what exactly does does she mean by that? Uh, uh, if not uh, violence uh, and the you know the stay in the streets. Um, uh, so so no I look did it do I think it it uh, rises to the level of a mistrial probably not uh, but what it does do is it it takes away from uh, the certainty that that we would have that this conviction was solely on the facts and the evidence sure and that, uh, I should point look, out and, and I think look in this case we're fortunate because this was so public. Uh, so many people saw so much of the evidence. Again, you know, we didn't see what the jury saw, and we saw more than the jury saw. Um, but I think most people can can have a high degree of confidence that that was the right verdict. Well, um, you know, but, 
but in a closer case, let me just say we're focusing a lot on Maxine Waters, but I think it's important to point out that somebody who has a much bigger audience and far more influence than Maxine Waters has ever or will ever have is Tucker Carlson. And Tucker Carlson said on Fox News after the verdict was announced that the jury in the Derek Chauvin trial came to a unanimous and unequivocal verdict this afternoon. Please don't hurt us. Tucker Carlson is a reprehensible human being for a lot of reasons. Maybe he's nice in his private life, loves dogs, is is wonderful to his, I don't know if he's married, wife or kids or something like that. But this is the sort of thing, this is the sort of thing that that makes me almost physically ill. And I I would, you know, so you're saying, well, there's a lot of clear evidence. But yeah, there are plenty of millions of people who follow Tucker Carlson, who's become sort of like the look the sean hannity of the post-trump age so to speak and, and would say yeah see this was you know chauvin you know maybe went a little far but uh this jury wasn't you know and i i would hope that you would also find that to be pretty reprehensible oh i do okay. yeah i just wanted to point out that this works both ways you know on this and I, but, but the but the distinction i would draw and, and again i'm uh, i agree tucker carlson um uh, that that whole pitch is reprehensible. And there was a really good piece, and I'm trying to think whether it was in, in uh, um, Jonah Goldberg's new uh, outlet or if it was a National Review. Uh, but sort of sort of you know putting Tucker Carlson and uh, Maxine Waters kind of side by side, sure, and and condemning them both. Yeah. So the distinction that I would draw though is is that Tucker Carlson's statements, reprehensible as they were, uh, came after uh, a, a decision, right? Um, and and there was no risk that he would sort of somehow infect the jury pool or or uh, uh, improperly weigh in on on their sure. on their deliberations. No, that's that's a reasonable distinction to make. So yeah, you know. I, so before we move on to our, our next story, what do you think about the prospects of of some sort of legislative action, some sort of compromise on this? Uh, there are a lot of folks on my side of the aisle who are hoping to. Get that George Floyd Act or some version of it passed by the first anniversary of Floyd's death. And I think it's the 25th. I believe the 25th of May, I think, is the date. And I don't know that that's going to happen. But do you think that that Tim Scott is doing all this work for nothing, you know, uh, or. uh, Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of my sense, too, (laughs) is that I think even though there there is the potential there, there are clearly a lot of things both sides agree on. I think, unfortunately, that both sides are much more interested in having an issue to run on than actually doing anything. But that said, I also think that the Bi- this is one area where the Biden administration Justice Department can do an awful lot of good and looks like they're going to sort of be moving in that direction. And so I still think we're, we'll be able to see some positive changes despite what I expect will be a lack of congressional action on this. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, no, um, I don't think any congressional action um and uh yeah it's yeah yeah unfortunately all right well jay before we get to our next story we just need to take a quick break and we will be right back okay jay so uh so yeah uh so we are yeah so moving our our next uh story mike it's happy earth day from a, (laughs) a couple couple days ago um I hope you hope you enjoyed it. Uh, as part of that uh, Earth Day, uh, Biden, uh, President Biden announced uh, that his pledge to cut U.S. emissions uh, in half uh, of the 2020, 20, 2005 levels uh, by 2030. Um, now, he hasn't made any uh, a, a real plans how exactly we'll do that. But this uh, joins uh, with other countries who have made similar new pledges uh over the last week regarding their emissions uh cuts uh china uh, i think notably said they 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 will have uh, peak emissions i think by 2025 and then start going down from there um which doesn't sound great saying we're going to keep increasing emissions for the next couple of years um but uh you know companies uh in addition you wanted to point this out that have made their own you know net zero uh, uh emissions pledges uh by by certain dates and i you know i'll i'll turn this to to you because um my thoughts are this is is very much a lot of of show and uh not not much substance um but i know we had a, a pretty strong disagreement um 
a couple years ago when uh, President Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords, um, which which no one has followed. Um, so so where do you think we are on on Earth Day and the the uh, welcoming back of the U.S. Um, uh, by the other uh, uh, by, by the global community on uh, climate issues? Well, I, I think you're right in the sense that. You know, Joe Biden can promise whatever he wants, but without any sort of legislative action, it doesn't account, doesn't amount to a whole lot. Even if we have a number of corporations, big corporations in some cases, you know, pledging these net zero standards, that sort of thing, or, you know, car companies saying that we're going to move to no emission vehicles by X day. That's good. I don't think it's enough, but we do see a lot of models in other countries where this actually has happened. For instance, there are four, there are currently 46 countries that have some form of carbon pricing or carbon tax. And this originally in the United States actually was an, uh, was an idea that came from the right as kind of a market-based way. Right. Of way doing, back in like the yeah. late 80s. Yeah. I mean, even China recently rolled out a national emissions trading program. Now it's super small at this point, but there are a lot, you know, the EU has this, Japan, Korea, Canada, Mexico, the UK. So there is a model here for doing this, even in a market-based sort of way. And that to me is encouraging that not only is there a model, but it's been adopted by a lot of countries. And I, I don't see any reason why this formerly conservative idea that the right has seemed to have abandoned uh, couldn't be something that could be a step that we could take here in the United States. Um, yeah, I, I guess um, that's the, it all depends on that's maybe one way to do it. I'm not sure, though. If you look at these uh, these other countries that have had carbon taxes, uh, to what extent has it really impacted their emissions? I guess that's, you know, U.S. emissions have been on a, a downward trajectory. And again, excluding 2020, which is, yeah. you know, bizarre for a whole bunch of other reasons, um, but have, have been on a downward trajectory uh, largely in in, in uh, result to more shift to natural gas. Um, uh, but but you know and just higher efficiency uh and I, I i don't know that does this um really help emissions or is it just another tax um the other i mean well i mean it but, it, it helps the question because because as a conservative i would think an article of faith for you is you know if you if you tax something you get less of it so if you tax yeah. you know any kind of activity you're going to get less of it that depending on where you set the tax rate. So, of course, if you tax carbon, you're going to get less of it. Yeah. So, and the uh, question the is, other, I mean, the other piece, uh, though, that's it's a little more complicated is that so much of, of uh, carbon, uh, which we use for energy, fuels the rest of the economy, which, which allows us to make these other technological advancements. Um, so if you're, if you're going to you know, keep reducing um, your your carbon input at some point, you also reduce, unless we find some other uh, really workable form of energy, you're also reducing the economic growth that can, can fuel the, the improvements that can pay for all the, the building fix-ups, that can pay for the, the, uh, the, the green infrastructure projects. Um, and see, to me, that uh, sounds and, like uh, you not trusting the not trusting the market because oh, well, no, I think I what, I what we found and my my concern my concern is that it, the market will work all too well here. No, and well, I'm saying what I'm saying is that what we've seen in so many areas is when these when these environmental standards are set, industry at first says, "Oh my God, we can't do that. That's going to mean that the cost of a new car is going to be a hundred thousand dollars, and they're going to people are going to be just dying in the streets because we're going to have to make them out of balsa wood or something like that." But industry has found a way to meet these targets, and so to me, actually, uh, a really a really positive way forward is for the government, the federal government to say, here are some overall targets we're going to set, or here is a market for emissions we're going to set up with overall targets. And we're going to let the market figure out how to do that as opposed to some very granular sort of regulation that oftentimes you can just find a million and one loopholes to get through. Oh, no, of the of those two approaches that you're describing, no, the, the second is is very much the better. But if also, if you look at something like, I mean, uh, first for example, time. vehicle vehicle cafe standards, right? Yeah. Uh, that you know we we talked about this almost maybe a year or so ago um 
in large part, what what companies are doing is is they're taking the bulk of sales on one product, the the bad product, uh, and then funneling it into subsidies for another one in order to keep their um, their 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 average, uh, uh, you know, yeah, within within the bounds yeah. that they're supposed to. And and look, does, does, so is that really working? I you know my sense is is no. And also this is something I I sort of hinted at a couple of weeks ago, but. You know, I always like to make the point when people talk about zero emissions vehicles, um, there's really no such thing um, unless you happen to live in a place that uh, is receives its electron, uh, electricity, you know, from fully nuclear or solar or, or wind or something like that. Um, even there, there's there's uh, emissions and, and costs uh, associated with putting those those pieces in place. Um but look, the the most the most conservative law ever, Mike, is the law of conservation of matter and energy. Um, and and your electricity comes from somewhere. And if the emissions aren't coming out of your car, uh, they may well be coming out of a coal fired power plant that's uh, making the electricity to charge your car. Sure, there. But I mean, the point is, is there are cleaner and dirtier forms of emission. And everyone having their own yeah. internal combustion engine in their vehicle is less clean and less good for the environment than everyone charging their electric cars. Because power plants are going to be cleaner than the individual, the millions of individual internal combustion engines people have in their vehicles. That's just, that's just a fact. I don't know. No, it's it's you you can you can disagree with it. It's a fact. It's it's just Mike says it's a fact. Yeah, it's a fact. You know, but uh, but I understand what you're saying, and I think that oftentimes the debate and the discussion, at least from the left on this, can be a little too one sided. It tends to focus on cutting emissions, and I think that's absolutely has to be a critical part of it. And I'm glad that the left focuses so much on that. But the other side of that, I think, has to be looking at things that oftentimes are really uncomfortable to folks on the left. And one of those things, I'll use it, dirty word, uh, uh, geoengineering. I think that we don't, we don't put nearly enough money into geoengineering. In fact, the first time I believe there was any U.S. government subsidy for this was in 2019. I believe the NOAA got like four four million, not billion, but four million dollars to study geoengineering ideas. That's that is such a pittance. And I'm not saying that, you know, I, I've seen Snowpiercer, you know, I'm not saying that we should just start <laughs> just throwing stuff randomly into the atmosphere. But I think the idea that we're going to be able to get to where we need to get to by just cutting output is just wildly naive. And that that certainly has to be part of the solution. But unless we can find ways to control, uh, ideally minimize the carbon in the atmosphere, and also unless we can focus more on uh, another dirty word to many people on the left, nuclear. Uh, yeah, then, that was the one I thought you were going to use in the first place. Yeah, no, I, I really think that we have to look at all of these things. And if we don't include all of these things, we're just shooting ourselves in the foot. So uh, I certainly think the left has part of the solution. But there are other parts that I wish that, you know, my, my fellow my fellow Democrats would focus a little bit more on. And again, geoengineering and nuclear, I think they have to be part of the solution. And not only that, but we want to make sure that, you know, the, in these technologies and you know that geoengineering is going to be a major a major focus in a lot of countries. Do we really want to be behind, say, China on geoengineering if it can become a you know multi-trillion dollar industry? I think not. So. That to me, it just makes good kind of economic and strategic sense as well. Well, my, my sense is the Chinese would would not be big into geoengineering because if it solves the car, car, carbon problem, that's no help to them. Um, no, I think it is but, because I mean, if you take a look at, I mean, that's the thing: the negative externalities of all of this pollution, of all of this climate change, they affect China in a huge way. China has twenty. I understand, I understand they affect the China in a huge way. Do you think they affect President Xi in a huge way? Absolutely. They, I mean, that, that he breathes the same air in, you know, in China that That's other people does. So absolutely, <laughs> they, have a, they have a huge interest in doing things that can mitigate carbon without mitigating economic growth. If they can do that, wow, that's, that's a huge thing. So absolutely, absolutely. So when, when when you know we you pitched that we were going to talk about this, I my my first thought was to to jump to sort of a David Letterman top ten list of 
top 10 ways the Russians and the Chinese are going to cut their emissions. And, you know, was thinking things like uh, all, hybr- all all tanks for the uh, Ukraine invasion will be hybrid. Yeah. Um, you know, cut cut the power, cut the heating to the uh, Xinjiang, uh, Xinjiang concentration camps. Um, I, you know, look, I, I in terms of what other countries are doing and can we count on their cooperation? I, I think the answer is no. See, I think I think you're. I, think I don't. You're I don't think that. these. I think Russia and China see this as a strategic play. Um, uh, I don't think they have any intention of of abiding by any of this. Uh, they just hope that we do, and they hope we're suckers. Well, see, and that's. I, I think that's. I think that's fundamentally wrongheaded because it's like saying, well, you know, we're all in this one big boat, and there are a whole bunch of holes on our end, and there are a whole bunch of holes on your end. Well, we're going to patch the holes on our end, and uh, the people on the other end are saying, well, ha ha ha, what suckers? We're not going to patch the holes on our end. Well, it's the same boat, and it's going to go down. So, no, I, I, I think for many other issues, yeah, but this is the one planet we're all on, and unless you just dismiss you know, the, the, the science on this, then I think that it's hard to not come to the conclusion that something has to be done. And sure, you know, uh, there are plenty of, pl- plenty of countries who say, I hope that the U.S. does more than its fair share. But the idea that you can just do nothing when you have 28% of the world's emissions and expect the world to be fine, that, that would suggest that the Chinese leadership is in- incredibly, insanely stupid. And it may be a lot of things, but it's not that. Oh, I, I, I look. This is this is. We can talk about this uh, uh, forever. But look, my sense is uh, the the Chinese and the Russians uh, have typically never been uh, interested in the well being of the rest of the world. Uh, the the political regimes that have historically uh, over the last century run those two countries uh, have been interested in their own preservation and their own comfort. Um, and their own power, and and I think uh, they would continue to do this. And I I don't I don't see why why uh, the Chinese with a booming economy would say, look, we're going to kneecap our our economy um, because but I think uh, you're missing my really point. Concerned. You're missing my point. I'm saying that 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 would suggest then that there would be a huge incentive for the Chinese and anyone else to find ways to deal with the effects of climate change that don't kneecap the economy. And what I'm saying is that geoengineering and nuclear are two ways where you can potentially not necessarily lower energy usage, but have that same level of energy usage and not decrease economic activity and not contribute to climate change. And who wouldn't want that? You'd have to be a, you'd have to be a moron not to want that. Wow. Well, I, look, I guess you just you just uh, have have wait, a whole wait, wait. lot more faith in time some out, of these other, so you're saying, these other nations than I do. You're saying to me that if 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 you're saying to me that the Chinese, you think they're saying, well, there might be a way where we could we could get in at the front of a trillion multi trillion dollar industry, be the world leader, where we could not have to cut our economic input, but we could also contribute to or not not create more global, you know, more of these greenhouse gases and other things that they would say, well, that's nothing we want to do. That's nothing we're interested in. That doesn't, that doesn't even, that makes no sense. Well, you're What's you're the assuming logic? that there is this multi-trillion dollar industry that, there I mean, look, be. if, I'm not saying if, there if is, this, if this was, if, if, uh, this was so lucrative, right? Why haven't people been doing it before? Well, uh, people are, are starting to do it. Need, and in fact, carbon, there's carbon, oh, go ahead. People are doing it. it. It is being done. It's in the early stages, certainly. But that's the time to kind of jump in and get the, you know, and get the, take the lead position, essentially. You know, that's why, for instance, China and, and a lot of other countries are doing a lot of stuff in solar and other renewables that and we, the United States used to be clearly head of the pack on this, but we've fallen back in a lot of these things. So it's not like this stuff isn't happening. It's not like the Chinese say, you know, the hell with the environment. We don't care about that. They, they, they clearly do. Yes, I, I think that's exactly what the Chinese say. No, not <laughs> at all. Not I, mean, a, I, don't, I, don't, I shouldn't So say you're saying the Chinese, the Chinese are I, monsters I mean, who don't leadership. care about the environment but we're wonderful people who do yeah i i would say wow. the the president g the uh, uh the heads of the chinese communist party don't care about the environment not at uh, all they, but they're saying like it would be awesome if we just destroyed the environment and there and the, the world were unlivable in 100 years yeah i think i think if they said as long as we're okay and as long as we're okay and we're so, all, as so long you're as we're saying in charge i think they'd be okay with that china's leaders don't have the basic humanity that our leaders do 
Yes. Okay. I'm saying that. So they're monsters. Are, would you say they're subhuman? Um, perhaps. Yeah. Wow. I mean, they're, if you're if you're putting if you're putting a uh, ethnic minority uh, in, in concentration camps and and killing them and, and forcibly sterilizing them, yeah. I, I that's that's sure um, they do some they do some awful things absolutely but but you're saying i mean what you're saying is, but they're really good for the environment that's, but no that's, but no what you're saying those are that's a different that's, category that's my, of thing that's sort of that's, that's a different category of thing because that's a different gonna, boat i mean you can say that well you know whatever happens to the 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 weirs or whatever you know that that doesn't affect me but the idea that that these people would be so blind to say that well you know, the quality of the air, that doesn't affect me. I, I've seen those pictures. You've seen those pictures. And, and President Xi and everyone else has lived in those days where you look out and there's just this horrific haze over everything yeah. in Shanghai. And that's not that. So the idea that it's all oh, that doesn't matter to me. That's I, I just I, I think that's just completely wrong. All right. Well, all right. I mean, so, we can. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, yeah. I, I think we have time for one more story. Before we get to that, let's just take our final quick break, and then we will come right back. Okay, Jay. So uh, it would be weird for us. It would be not weird, but I, I certainly would not want to go all episode without talking about at least one Supreme Court case. And we do have one, don't we? We Well, we have two. Can I, can I pick which one? Absolutely. <laughs> we, had, we had two that we, we had uh, talked about. Um, uh, last week, a unanimous Supreme Court uh, ruled against the FTC uh, regarding its powers uh, to essentially assess damages and uh, claim um, uh, reclaim funds. It was a $1.3 billion uh, award that the uh, FTC had uh, originally gotten against a payday loan company uh, that was engaged in some truly egregious uh, things uh, and the uh, unanimous court said, "Well, no, that's that's not what the statute says. Uh, the statute says you can have injunctive relief, meaning uh, a court order telling them to stop, um, and it also says other, also includes other relief. But but the the other relief, uh, the court reasoned, uh, is dependent on the FTC doing some internal administrative actions first, uh, and not just jumping straight to court to get the." Uh, injunction. So I think I think this is interesting for a couple reasons. Uh, and the first being it's a unanimous Supreme Court decision. Yeah. Um, now there are probably more of those than most people think. Right? There are actually not- yeah there are actually a lot more unanimous decisions than there are five to four decisions. Most people don't realize that because the unanimous ones don't get a lot of publicity. You know, but right. I think it's, a lot of people. It's are the planes that land on time. Yeah. Yep, exactly. You know, I thought it was interesting to me where in in oral arguments, the attorney representing the FTC uh, said, literally said, you know, yeah, we bring a lot more cases through court than we do through our administrative process, basically because it's a lot easier for us to do. Right. Even though the statute says nothing, doesn't even, I mean, it's clear that the statute doesn't give them authority to do it. It gives them authority to uh, seek a permanent injunction through the courts. But not for these monetary damages, which is not to say that Scott Tucker didn't and his companies didn't do some, like you said, egregious things. And it's not even to say that the FTC can't initiate a process that would force these the compensation to be made. Yeah, they absolutely have the power to do that. Yeah, they just didn't want to go to the hassle of doing it the long way, basically. That's that's exactly right. So that's why I, th- I think this is a, a uh, great decision. Yeah. Um. And and what I'll tell you, well, though, what what troubles me and I don't know, we didn't talk about this, but um, immediately thereafter, uh, acting FTC chair uh, Rebecca Kelly Slaughter uh, slammed the ruling, saying the Supreme Court ruled in favor of scam artists and dishonest corporations, leaving them average Americans to pay for illegal behavior. Well, the first Um, part of that is true. That's pretty that's pretty bold. And and yeah. to me, to me, that's that strikes me as wow. Well, the first part um, of it's as, true. As someone, as someone like who who litigates in court, right? I've uh, there have been plenty of times when a a decision didn't go my way, and uh, rarely am I called upon to make a public statement about it, just because it's it's things that no one cares about. But uh, you know, the the typical response was, uh, you know, we respectfully disagree with the court. We think they got it wrong, and here's why. Um, but to say that the the court. Um, 
ruled for scam artists. Well, it did. Uh, I mean, but that first part, let, I think we need to separate that statement. Uh, Scott Tucker was a scam artist. Uh, and Absolutely. the court, yeah. the court ruled for Scott Tucker, the scam artist. Now, the court was right to rule for Scott Tucker, the scam artist. And that gets to the second part. And, you know, I think that FTC head was just, you know, was disappointed that now her agency is going to have to take the more either take the more arduous path to get relief for these people or to petition Congress to change the law so that they can go to the courts more readily. And in fact, there's legislation uh, pending along those lines. And you know, whether that's a good or bad thing is immaterial, but it certainly will make life harder for the FTC. And, and I think so she's right in that sense that this definitely does make things harder for the FTC and it does make it more difficult for them to get economic redress from, from scam artists to the people who were scammed. But to me, then, the solution to that is to say, well, Congress, pass a law explicitly granting us this authority, and it'll make it oh, easier. Oh, right, right, right. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And look, if, if Congress uh, amended the statute and said uh, the FTC uh, has the uh, power to seek uh, monetary damages uh, in federal court, then, then great. Um, I don't have any particular issue on the policy piece of it. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, maybe, look, there's, there's an argument that... If it goes up through the administrative decision process, uh, uh, there's more fact finding, there's more uh, uh, expertise by the uh, agency, all that kind of stuff, and and all those are those are fine arguments, and, and you know probably that's going to be the better route. You also run into deference issues and all that, but 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 look, I see nothing. Uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with uh, saying I think Congress uh, should amend the statute. What I take issue with interstatement with is is the sort of the broadside against the court saying the court ruled for scam artists. Sure. Uh, not, not that we're disappointed that the court uh, uh, took a narrow review of this uh, statute um, and will approach Congress uh, and, and seek to expand it. No, I hear, um, I hear what you're saying there, and it's the broader I mean, it's sort issue. Of, it's sort of yeah. saying the, yeah. the Supreme Court, it, and that this, this is something that bugs me about uh, judicial, one, judicial reporting, and to the way it, it's more often the left that, that handles this, and I'm not going to let the right off completely because certainly Trump said some some crazy outrageous things uh, about court decisions. Um, but but the sense is that that courts uh, their job is to pick the good guy and the bad guy, and then just rule for whichever one they like better. Well, I think the modern right feels that every bit as much as the modern left. I agree with you on this, but I and I think that of the sort of the type of conservatives who more exemplified the Republican Party when you and I were coming up, there was more of a distinction. But now, pretty much uh, uniformly on the right and the left, it's all about outcomes, and we don't really care how we get there. It's just as long as we get the decision we want. And both you and I bemoan that, me from the left and yeah. you from the right. So, yeah, this is definitely something that we, we agree on. And on that larger point, yeah, I think that that response, the nature of her response was disrespectful to the court and just is another example of people just trying to essentially question the legitimacy of the institution when they don't like the outcome. Exactly. No, yeah. that that's, I have that's exactly that. yeah. my point, and yep. that's exactly what what troubles me. Because uh, again, this was not a. Um, uh, it's not as if the court, and if you you know you read the opinion, it's not as if they said, "Wow, this this guy's really cool. We like him. We're ruling for him." Uh, screw you, consumers. It's it, it's very much of you know just looking. Here's what the statute says. Here's what the powers that you were given, FTC. Here are the other powers that you have. Here's another way you could have done this. Yeah. Um, you know, and and so yeah, that's that's what what I think is is, and to me, what's also remarkable is that, that the FTC has been able to to continue this practice for as long as it has. Yeah, no kidding. And this has going been going on for like you know nearly thirty years, and no um, one no one thought to challenge them on this when it seems yeah again it seems like wow they could have uh, yeah I, I agree that's pretty pretty strange to me but there you go yeah so. All right. Well, on that note of strong agreement, we will close today. But there's a bunch of things we didn't get a chance to talk uh, about that we will get to on our midweek show, like 
Jay mentioned that other Supreme Court decision that wasn't unanimous about uh, life sentence, life without parole sentences for juvenile defenders, uh, the House passing the D.C. statehood bill. And by the way, the recently, a few days ago, 420, uh, as Chuck Schumer called it, the unofficial marijuana holiday for the country. We'll talk a little bit about his plans and what we might see in terms of legalization or decriminalization and maybe even some questions from listeners. And all of that will be on the midweek show if you are a if you are a supporter that should be in your feed by wednesday morning if you're not well you know how to become a supporter just go to patreon.com slash politics guys and again remember if you can't afford to support the show just send me an email mikeypoliticsguys.com and i will take care of that for you and finally it costs nothing and it really helps us out if you subscribe to the show leave ratings and reviews and especially if you could share episodes on social media that really does help us get the word out a special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you join us.